Kyle Sondland and Herbert Konings are founding partners of Security Token Group. All opinions expressed by them or guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not represent the views of Security Token Group or its subsidiaries. You should not take any opinion expressed on the show as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow any investment strategy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Security Token Show, episode 17. My name is Kyle Sondland, and boy, do we have a doozy for you today. And I'm his co-host, Herwick Konings, and I'm excited. The topic today are stablecoins securities. So stablecoins are back, and this time with a serious question around whether they're securities or if we can pin them off as a commodity or a currency. So the U.S. government wants to know, and so do we. So let's do a deep dive about that a little later in the episode. As always, let's first kick off the show with our companies of the week. This is where we highlight the companies making the biggest moves in the industry, at least in the last week. And Kyle, I'm curious, who is it for you this week? So my company of the week this week is an organization that I actually was not familiar with prior to this interesting news. And this is the Association of National Numbering Agencies, also known as the ANNA or ANA. And so this association is known for its widely adopted ISIN numbers, that are used in over 200 jurisdictions to label securities for efficient and international asset transfer. Those you had heard of before, I'm sure. You may have heard of ISIN numbers before. I certainly had, but I was not familiar with the association that puts this together. And there was actually a third-party independent entity where they create these numbers that you can use to track asset transfer. And so they came out today announcing, or this week rather, announcing that their launching a task force, if you will, that is looking to standardize digital assets in the tokens and cryptocurrency space. And so this, bo- this body is you know, the association that puts together the identification numbers for securities all around the world, whether it's funds, whether it's equities, debt instruments, they all have ISIN numbers. And they're looking, how to, looking at how to apply this to the digital space. And so they said that it's assembling this task force that aims to investigate the feasibility of digital asset labels for cryptocurrencies, tokens, and blockchain technology as they intersect with the financial markets. And quote, they, they want to assess the role and scope of ISINs in respect to digital identification to provide recommendations on the potential assignment of ISINs to all kinds of digital assets, including asset tokens, payment tokens, utility tokens, and hybrids. Underpinning this evaluation is the ANNA's core aim to support a transparent, compliant, and official financial market structure. And so this is great news because ISIN numbers are this unique identifier that all different financial jurisdictions use to validate and standardize their assets. And so the fact that they're looking at how to apply these for digital assets is tremendous. They did not specifically mention security tokens. I was really hopeful that they would mention digital securities or security tokens or something to recognize that our industry is separate. That being said, I'm very confident and I'm optimistic that with their specific notation on asset tokens, that they're going to be able to find out a lot about security tokens. Certainly, you know, large companies like Securitize and T0 have made serious waves in the public financial markets in terms of, of bringing this to light. I can't see how they would overlook this industry, especially because security tokens are a great use case for ISIN numbers that can really help provide legitimacy for some of these higher quality assets that are exploring the space. So for the reason that they're getting into this industry, they're taking a look and trying to figure out how to apply a higher level of standardization and disclosures to these assets. The ANNA is my company of the week. Very cool, Kyle. I totally see why. I think your logic makes sense. They're a major international body from the financial world trying to bring standardization to the crypto markets. I think it's pretty safe to assume that their task force will eventually be looking at tokenized securities. There are certainly already uh, capacities for tokenized securities today to file for a similar number. 
uh, or an ISIM. But at the end of the day, where does it trade? What exchanges? You know, I, the part of the use case that they came about was to create that standardization so that you have a variety of different exchanges that don't communicate with each other. You can at least standardize the stock through one ISIM number. So the see them go for cryptocurrencies is fascinating because you have this kind of new type of exchanges focused on utility tokens. But they clearly recognize that assets and stocks and other things are a component of this. So naturally, I expect them to, to definitely explore the security token space too. Glad to see that they have their eye on this. Yeah, the ticker is an interesting point. We, uh, especially with all the, the blockchain news and how all of these, these different issuance platforms are launching their own blockchains with their own clients, we may see that, that in some protocols there may be a ticker that is taken. Let's say it's reserved from a dead coin or by somebody that had claimed this at one point or maybe is still using it and doesn't have to be dead. But let's say your, your ticker is reserved on one blockchain but you want to be listed on a specific exchange. Well, just like this happens in public markets sometimes. The example that I was reading from Investopedia was IBM. IBM's common equity is on multiple exchanges, I think over 25 exchanges around the world. And it does not have the same ticker for each exchange. And that's okay. Why? Because they use the exact same ISIM. So you're able to track that this is in fact the same asset regardless of what its potential price is because different exchanges have different liquidity. And based off of the ticker, well, it also doesn't need to have the same ticker either. So as long as we have some level of underlying standardization, that's a key piece and a key aspect to relate all of these different assets together in the same pool. So Really great analogy, Kyle. I think that makes it even clearer why they are addressing this issue. And we also know security tokens can be on different blockchains. They can be on different exchanges. They can even be governed by different jurisdictions. So of course, naturally, some kind of standardization is going to be necessary. And no better body than the ANNA to be the one enforcing this and helpfully bringing more clarity to security tokens in the future. My company of the week is a little different. It's actually coming news out of Canada, specifically the Ontario region. So the Freedom Exchange has officially been the first secondary market to be approved by Ontario securities regulators to create a sandbox and start tokenizing and trading STOs. Now, there is a hitch to this. They are part of a sandbox. So they are, they've been greenlit through April 17th, 2021 to go ahead and offer these financial services. But more specifically, it's restricted to the 14 and a half million amazing citizens of Ontario. So hopefully mm. they're going to get up and get active and start participating in the secondary market to prove the use case. And of course, traditional KYC and other regulation procedures need to be followed for this exchange. But I think this is major news because for those of you who don't know, Canada is set up in a multi-jurisdictional financial sandbox. Each region has their own regulators. So hopefully this incites other jurisdictions to also pursue similar legislation. Hopefully we see the use case here show great value proposition so that they enact from a temporary run to a, a full-time uh, exchange. And we also know that the Canadian Securities Exchange has also announced a focus on tokenized uh, securities and SCOs and a blockchain infrastructure for their exchange, although no expectations as to when that's going to happen have been revealed. We do know that they're actively looking at it. So Big step forward for Canada, big step forward for Ontario, and congratulations to the Freedom Exchange for being my company of the week. That's fascinating and very exciting. We've seen a lot of, of Canadian financial infrastructure. They certainly have led, led the way recently with, with their acquisitions to public listings that we see, um, or reverse mergers, what it seems to be called these days in, in the financial markets, especially in Canada. It's been very successful and productive for businesses. Right. So they're always trying to be forward-thinking in how they can leverage these financial instruments and, and allow for, for more companies' adoption. So that's fantastic. Totally agree. And I'm looking forward to the rest of the news. Yeah, and, and actually FreedomX was developed by a company called TokenGX, and they have a platform called... Um, Token Funder, which is their issuance platform. Cool. So I assume that presenting a holistic infrastructure to the regulators helped them get their approval. So this was certainly no willy-nilly attempt. And so again, 
Uh, I think they earned it. Congratulations to them. Like you said, let's get into the news. And starting off, I have a bit of an update from last week's news, news regarding Bank of Lithuania, who had issued some guidelines for issuers looking to leverage STOs in the region. Specifically, they came out, for those of you who have not caught last week's episode or are new listeners today, uh, specifically the Bank of Lithuania came out with similar types of guidelines as the United States where they simply said, if you have a tokenized offering and it seems to have the characteristics of a security, then it will be treated as such. And if it does not have those characteristics, similar to the Howey test here in the United States, then it will be considered a utility and will be separated as such. Not quite going as far as to define them in specific categories or based on those characteristics, but broadly attributing to the historical law uh, and governance of securities in the past. Now, this actually led to a lot of calls going in regarding STO interest. They said the, the Bank of Lithuania has been on a lot of calls with people. They are a little skeptical still at the end of the day, questioning whether these people are exploring the security token offering technology or if they're actually going to be implementing it and using it. But nevertheless, they see the benefits of blockchain across the board for the financial ecosystem Following their announcement uh, and of their guidelines, they actually announced a partnership with IBM Poland and Tieto Leituva to launch what they call LB Chain, which I can only imagine stands for uh, Lithuania Bank's chain. Um, LB Chain is both a technology platform as well as a regulatory sandbox aiming to solve several problems faced by financial innovators, specifically referring to fintech startups that have bold and innovative ideas but lack general knowledge and experience when it comes to the actual financial ecosystem, legal issues, and regulation, of course. And so the LB chain is meant to offer both a technology rail, which the product project manager, Andreas Adamonis actually said that it basically means that you can start your product from scratch and use LB Chain to develop it into a market-ready solution. That to me seems like they are, you know, providing all the necessary rails for you to launch a token or a platform on. While at the same time, they also want to offer consultation. So they are clearly being a very forward-thinking and very open-minded and very open in general, reachable. Uh, regulatory institution to try and develop out their security token infrastructure, which I think is always commendable. It's fantastic to see and great that they are actually continuing to to launch. Uh, so any co- comments from you, Kyle? It's exciting. It's cool to see a regulatory jurisdiction approaching this in a productive and forward-thinking manner. Obviously, that's what we always preach here on the podcast and whatever they can do to provide some legitimacy or even to just provide perspective into the space and start working with it, start start providing a platform for some of our highest quality issuers around the world to be able to facilitate th- these instruments and, and raise money and, and to provide investors access. And, you know, we've seen other jurisdictions have, uh, let's call it financial sandboxes uh, in the past. The FCA has one that's very prominent that a lot of tokenization companies are a part of. We just saw Ontario has a similar program, and there are many other countries around the the world that offer something similar. But what I will tell you is unique, Kyle, is this is the first technology-enabled or at least government-sponsored blockchain solution for the financial sandbox, which I think is very, very unique in that regard. And we'll see if they're open to people using outside technologies. In this case, LB Chain is developed on Corda and Hyperledger Fabric. But, uh, you know, in regards to the FCA and others, the the companies have been open to choosing which technology or blockchain that they're using. We'll see if it's similar or if in this case it'll be a requirement to use the LB chain if you're going to be issuing any kind of tokenized securities in Lithuania. So with that, we'll definitely be keeping our eye on all that and letting you all know the update as it comes out. No specific deadlines or, or timing has been set for all that. But again, it's a path forward and very exciting overall. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Moving on to uh, another part of the world here, China. 
China made some big waves recently, Kyle. And for those of you who are listeners who come from the crypto world, or maybe even just happened to see the news over the weekend that Bitcoin had a massive price jump, a big spike, I think something like 30% or something like that. And they say it was rumored to be correlated to China, which made a recent announcement basically saying that they are all in on blockchain. It has been a bit of a shock, or at least it's been very secretive up until this day with China in the past banning Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and ICOs and kind of going under the radar and and stealth mode. And now it has been revealed that they are extremely bullish, to say the least, announcing 500 different enterprise blockchain projects all at once, pretty much spanning every possible use case for blockchain that's pretty much been talked about to date. And of course, within that sector is a financial services sector. So there were four common use cases within that, trade finance, asset management, cross-border payments, and supply chain financing, with over six banks, including two major state-owned national banks of China and four local ones filing 14 different blockchain projects. The ICBC actually partnered with the People's Bank of China also to study the technology itself and develop a small to medium business financing platform, which I'd be curious to learn more about, but unfortunately was unable to. The China Construction Bank, also one of the four major Chinese commercial banks, is revamping its trade finance blockchain-based platform as well, which it already has, saying that trading volume on the platform reached a reported $53 Now, this is them leveraging blockchain as a DLT solution for the background, but it seems that they are interested in including facilitating financial transactions such as factoring and forfeiting and providing immediate cash for exporters in exchange for short-term receivables. Naturally, security tokens, stable coins, and the like are going to have a role within that. And on that note, the Bank of China also completed its first international money transfer to South Korea in dollars via its own patented blockchain payment system, hinting towards a stable coin type solution within this whole ecosystem from China as well. A major, major announcement. Definitely will be curious to see what other kinds of specifically financial market services and, and capital markets solutions come out, but definitely, you know, China's back in the game, Kyle. It's interesting. It's, it's uh, we had talked about this one in terms of whether whether this was fully security token news or, or more crypto and blockchain, but it does seem like there's a lot of, of relevance here to the security token space in terms of asset management and how, you know, tokenized assets certainly plays a part there. We know that Japan is interested in, in getting involved in security tokens, so I'm sure that China has their eye there as well as well as, as you mentioned, a lot of the financial services products that will directly benefit. And, you know, potentially if stable coins get, get determined to security, then there's a big piece of it there. But, um, yeah, it's exciting. It's very, very exciting. I want to see what, what China actually ends up leveraging with this. I, I know certainly from their economy they prefer it to be a much closed, much more closed economic system, which means that they're not quite as excited about having money from China leave China's economic system. They much prefer it to stay inside of that ecosystem. It's why they've been so successful and and certainly over the last 50 years has been very beneficial for them as they kind of maintain their economic prosper. So it'll be interesting to see this is obviously kind of going a little bit against that. It's making it more of a decentralized, if you will, system that allows for, as we as you even mentioned, they, they did a cross-border payment with a potential new stable coin with South Korea. It, it, it will be... An, a, a very fascinating thing to see how China kind of polices this moving forward. It's funny you mentioned that. Definitely, I think, personally, a fair criticism. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it, it definitely is a move towards decentralization. But it's fair to say, though a digital environment, still a very controllable one, right? Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to see how the regulators uh, and the banks leverage their own you know, methods to lock down, let's say, their own blockchains and cryptocurrency as a result. So yeah, it's the new age we're moving into. For Not sure. a criticism, though, for the record. So there's there just go. an interesting different policy. Moving on, we have Swarm, which has launched a do-it-yourself security token issuance app. So Swarm is a nonprofit as well as an open source security token protocol. We've mentioned them on the show in the past. Recently, they've been launching a lot of apps on top of their Swarm protocol to help create adoption, the latest being this self-do-it-yourself issuance platform, which I think is great. All you have to do, it's self-guided. You go online, I believe it's swarm.app, 
and you can go ahead and start minting your own security tokens that are SRC20 compliant. You will need to stake some swarm tokens, which is how their, their model works. But ultimately, this is meant to be a, a test. There's a test net, which you can then publish into onto the main net if you so desire. But the purpose of this is for anybody to be able to go and try out making their own security token using Swarm, using their app. Their goal is to have 100 tokens be launched via the app in the first month. We'll keep a tally on to see if that ends up happening. But ultimately, their mission has always been to make tokenization of securities as cheap and easy as possible. And certainly a self-guided do-it-yourself app makes it one step closer. And there is no clear official pricing model or how many Swarm tokens are, are required, at least in the announcement. But we can tell you that it, according to using the app very briefly, that they can say, we'll send you some Swarm tokens if you want to play around with it and test it. So go ahead and take advantage of that offer if you need some. And it's actually very relevant to last week's update from Polymath, which actually also announced new you know, low-cost pricing for tokenizing a security token using the Polymath standard. And we, we got from an inside source to confirm, so my fault, a uh, quick correction here, that it's actually as little as $300 to create an issuable token on the Polymath platform, which is definitely tremendously cheap. The source mentioned also that their goal is mass adoption, so their fees are meant to be subsidized in order to create that incentive. And I think it'll be interesting to see how Swarm and Polymath and the like as sort of competing protocols play out with the goal of simply making it as easy as possible to tokenize uh, uh, any type of security. We even saw it at CIS for Talo doing a live tokenization as a demo. It certainly seems to be a trend to, to make this as easy as possible. We'll see if this ease of use also encourages top-notch issuers and top-quality projects to leverage the technology, but certainly I'll never fight against adoption. So I think this is great stuff all around. You and I have had conversations before about how issuance was likely one piece of, of the industry that would be commoditized over time because it's something that, that so many issuers are going to need that it's such a competitive space. And so lowering the friction for issuers to be able to provide these tokenization options is going to be huge, right? Because the opportunity cost for an issuer to explore this opportunity becomes a lot less as opposed to requiring you know, X amount of dollars up front or, you know, six months of development time or any of these pieces that, that you know, certainly would turn someone off if they had an ulterior fundraising strategy. So great for them. Awesome work. Truly exciting. But moving on and speaking of Polymath, they recently were also in the news having partnered with a company called MarketLend. And MarketLend is an Australian SME loan marketplace that to date since 2014 has originated about 150 million loans. The marketplace lender developed a new blockchain currency called Black, which is said to create a secondary market for its corporate loans by facilitating a process of tokenization of assets over blockchain. The creation of Black will allow MarketLand investors to buy assets of assets over blockchain uh, and buy the assets via tokens, manage loan contracts on the platform, and facilitate liquidity and lift transparency because records of investors' holdings can be viewed over Ethereum as well as verified. MarketLand will launch Black as a pilot project this week, giving 26 investors in one of the loans issued over its platform a digital wallet to hold their digital currency. Mr. Tyndall said the structure had been created under its existing Australian financial services license with advice from a global law firm and is only being provided to sophisticated wholesale investors. So it certainly seems like this is a fully regulated platform issuing these security tokens representing these SME loans. And for those of you who have been listening or who know me personally, know that this to me is a very exciting use case for blockchain, specifically originating loans, but even more so leading the way for what I like to call blockchain-powered securization, essentially enabling you to have a completely on-chain, completely transparent loan portfolio that's completely programmatic and can be managed within a wallet, in creating a whole new type of asset management and portfolio uh, management tools and ultimately a great future use case of securitization. So it's exciting to see MarketLend join the, the group of people, including Providence, MakerDAO, and many other debt protocols looking to make this use case a reality. And of course, congrats to the Polymath team for being selected as the backend provider for the platform. Congratulations. Awesome move. Fully on board. Herbig, I, I 
and I share your opinion on, on blockchain-powered securitization. Fantastic use case, one that's clearly defined, easy to value, and, and very profitable at a, a lower risk often than, than what we see in traditional and, equities. And markets. also great so. here because we're not just talking about somebody developing a blockchain protocol. We saw with Provenance that they had to launch figure to start originating their own loans. In this case, we're talking about a marketplace with already 150 million loans to date, a track record, a user base of investors, and naturally uh, loans that they're sourcing through uh, their, their network. So ultimately, we're talking about existing infrastructure getting upgraded with security token technology, which is what we want to see happen. Market penetration as opposed to market creation. You kind of avoid that chicken versus the egg problem that we seem to see. A major one stopping a lot of folks. So we'll, of course, as always, be keeping our eye on that. And last but not least, we have a new global security token exchange that has been announced called Polybird which is based out of New York and launched by an individual named Harish, who we have actually spoken to directly in the past. He was previously an economist at Barclays and said he saw the security token technology upending Wall Street, forcing him to actually quit and launch Polybird out of his passion. The company has partnered with a broker-dealer called AX Trading LLC, allowing them to have the regulatory licenses they need to launch the marketplace here in the United States. And their focus use case is bridging the gap between the public markets and private companies as a result of IPOs becoming more and more mature, public markets requiring much more robust financials. Polybird is hoping to fill the gap in creating a secondary marketplace for security to using security tokens for private companies that aren't quite yet ready for their public debut. We'll be on the lookout for more updates from Polybird as they launch in the future. And of course, it's always exciting to see the U.S. exchange market continue to heat up with more and more SDO exchanges. Kyle, any thoughts from you? Yeah, Harish, Harish Gupta and his team uh, are doing great things. We're excited to see them launch their exchange. He also is very supportive of our SEC document and feedback that we gave regarding private securities laws. So we really appreciate him and the support he's given us. So. Um, yeah, we'll keep you updated on, on when their, their exchange goes live. He says they're working on it. It'll be live ASAP and uh, can't wait. Sounds good. Well, that's all the news I have for this week. I'll hand it over to you, Kyle, for the latest news from Security Token Offerings. All right. Well, we got a couple updates. And the never-ending saga actually has a positive turn. And we're talking, of course, about Overstock.com, T0, and, uh, and the like. So... The Overstock.com dividend. If you remember, this is maybe six episodes ago now, we discussed, maybe more, we talked about how Overstock was planning to launch a digital dividend of a security token. And so they had come out and mentioned that they were going to be paying investors a dividend of their Overstock equity that would be given as, as one share for every 10 that you held in common equity. You'd get one digital token. And so, therefore, the digital equity would represent 10% of the common share equity, which is sitting in somewhere in the $30 range. I actually haven't checked it today, but, but it, was, it was there $20 to $30 over the last couple of months, so I presume it's around there, which means that the security token would, would be sitting in that you know, $2, $3 range. And so they announced this back when Patrick Byrne was CEO, but as I'm sure you're aware, he was relieved of his duties following... Quite a bit of drama inside and outside of the office. But new CEO Jonathan Johnson is committed to maintaining the launch of this tokenized dividend. And he believes that by eliminating the current restrictions with the outstanding Series A1 shares, that the dividend can be held and traded by a wide group of investors. And so what this essentially means is that he's looking to remove a couple of restrictions on priority for a few of their earlier classes of shares, which will allow this dividend to be viewed or treated equally amongst all of these different share classes. And that's why we have seen this holdup in the token distribution. Supposedly, the token was supposed to be paid out, I believe, in September and was delayed. Certainly, that was around the exact same time Burn was leaving, so there was a lot that they needed to clean up there in the office. And now they're revamping this program, but there's a slight hiccup in the sense that Jonathan Johnson is committing to a shareholder vote. So shareholders of all of their different classes of shares, I think it's series A, A preferred, B, B preferred, and C. I believe there are five different classes will be able to be voting, voting on whether this dividend will happen. 
presumably it's in your best interest. I, you know, certainly make sure you read and do, do all the diligence required there. I am not an investor, so you know, I can't give you any insight there on the vote, but take a look, read it, consider what the best option is for you and your interests, and then provide the vote. Jonathan Johnson did say, quote, this vote gives our shareholders the opportunity to voice their view on the application of blockchain technologies to our securities markets. With these proposed changes to the certificate of designation, a broader group of shareholders will be able to hold and trade the Series A1 dividend on the day of its distribution. So he mentioned that he predicted that after the vote, he was expecting about a month following that, you would see that distribution. So in a month from when this vote is conducted, which I presume is going to be the next couple of weeks, you'll be able to get those shares. So expect those shares probably in January of 2020. Something like that seems realistic for the distribution of the quarter three dividend. Don't forget, this is not quarter four. So depending on how their quarter four goes, I'm not sure if they'll do an additional dividend. There's there's a lot there. <laughs> but we'll keep you updated as always. And uh, positive news, at least, that they're trying to get their house in order and are not just scrapping projects. Yeah, and obviously I'm biased to hope to see this vote pass in the positive way so that they can go ahead and distribute this in a month's time. It's not the most groundbreaking of underlying assets, but nevertheless, it is a groundbreaking use of security token technology. And I'd like to, I'd like to see it come to fruition. It does. It does. It does become very interesting. I'd love to see these get distributed and, and enter onto secondary exchange because we'll be able to see if there's a premium or discount that's applied to the security token that isn't for the common equity. Right. In theory, it should be literally pegged. No pun intended or reference intended to the overstock common shares. We'll see if that if that changes or flexes based off of interest in security tokens, international participation. Um, or potentially if people are concerned about risks. But moving on to the Merge IPO, I wanted to give a little bit of additional perspective on Merge. We actually had a great call with them and their team, and uh, I did some research into the actual Merge investor deck and wanted to provide a little perspective. So Merge is a licensed and regulated uh, exchange by the Financial Services Authority of Seychelles. So they're based out of Seychelles, and they actually are an existing securities exchange with over 30 securities listed and trading on their exchange since 2012. And so the, the Financial Services Authority of Seychelles is an associate member of the International Organization of Securities Commissions, which is the same international standard that is a, adhered by from every credible regulator of global securities markets. This is the same organization that the London Stock Exchange, New York Stock Exchange, NASDAQ, CBOE, CME, and many more follow in terms of their standards for regulation. So what I'm saying here is that the, the Financial Services Authority of Seychelles takes regulation very seriously. And just because it's a small country that you may, may or may not have heard of prior to merge or prior to, to the last couple of podcast episodes, you shouldn't be quite as afraid of its legitimacy, right? They're really trying to take the steps in, in terms of providing that level of, of security. And so this is the regulatory body that's over, overseeing MERGE. So in theory, as, as MERGE is, is, is licensed by the F, FSA of Seychelles, they would have those same standards. MERGE is also an affiliate member of the World Federation of Exchanges. And so these are the most trusted operators of securities infrastructure globally. And so this is a... This is a you know, federation that is a member of, of the NASDAQ, the CBOE, the London Stock Exchange, German banks, and more. So another, you know, security token exchange that is looking to get regulated. In fact, this is the only security token exchange with this license. So there is not a single other security token exchange around the world that has this specific license that the NYSE, NASDAQ, CBOE, LSE, and many of these others also have. So another level of legitimacy that Merge is trying to provide here, again, because they were a functioning securities exchange prior to listing security tokens. And by the way, maybe the first that we know of that is going live with a security token with prior securities exchange experience. So with Merge, their, their, their deal offering structure looks like this. They got a 10,000 minimum investment inside the U.S. for U.S. investors and 2,000 outside of the U.S. for international investors looking to invest at a $2.42 price per share. As we mentioned, they're raising $4 million at a $25 million post-money valuation with a 500K soft cap. Obviously, this is all in US dollars, and the $500,000 soft cap has been reached at this time. 
And so the fundraiser does close in November. It's the November 8th. So we've got about a week, a little over a week left. But the good news is that the full second of liquidity is expected the week after. So November 13th, you should be able to wow. exchange these tokens, be able to buy on the secondary markets or sell on the secondary markets as well. And because it's an IPO security token, it does seem like there are no private security lockup periods. So that's good. And also suggests in the deck that it's open to all retail investors. So if you have 10K lying around and aren't an accredited investor, don't worry about it. You can still invest here in the U U.S., and if you've got 2K around the world and want to throw it into a regulated security token exchange that is really going to try to lead the way with regulatory compliance and experience, definitely take a look over there. Finally, we have ZN Inc. This is a security token. It's a new offering, so we don't have an update here. We have a new offering and an announcement from ZN Inc. who announces the first acquisition of an oil and gas lease. This is a 241-acre property in Rains County, Texas, that was actually sold in exchange for 2.3 million ZN coins. And so ZN Inc. is an asset manager, so they own, I think, 18 oil and natural gas properties with, I think, over 1,600 acres across Midwestern United States. And so this specific property is, is as we said, in Texas, and it covers 241 acres of land. And so this is actually the first property sold directly through ZN coin with their coin that is a deemed a security token. I was, uh, you know, looking through their website to find more information on ZN coin, but it does seem a little bit confusing over which, which tokens they've raised for and which token this specifically was. Um, however, they, they've completed a really successful acquisition for this land. They were able to use their, their ZN coins as a currency, as a means of exchange here. And congratulations to ZN coin for, for all of their success. I think that's huge. That's the first uh, oil and gas lease that I know that's been successfully tokenized and uh, sounds like it's going to be issued. So that's really great. Yeah. So we certainly haven't seen many examples of security tokens being used as a currency in, in terms of, of, of this asset transfer, but, but theoretically it works, it checks out. And, and if we can find more information on specifically on what ZN coin is, the underlying asset and all the pieces there, certainly we'll keep you updated because you better believe I'm looking it up myself. Moving forward into the market update, we have you know, a relatively slow week over the last week. So just gonna be a quick update this week. We got T0 sitting around the same price as it was last week. I got it at $1.37 today at market close on Monday, the 28th, with about $4,000 in trading volume today. So we're looking at a similar $35 million market cap as we had over the last couple of weeks. We'll certainly see how this price changes because, again, we do have that digital dividend from Overstock.com, which should affect the market value of T0 equity because T0 equity is based off of the transaction fees that they get from exchanging of assets. So theoretically, the more assets results in the more interest and the more trading from investors, which results in more transfer fees for T0. So hopefully T0's price will see an increase as they continue to onboard more assets. Again, this is not investment advice. You need to do your own research. There's no guarantee in any price increase, but but you'd be, you'd be optimistic for T0 as they can list more assets. That's obviously their main goal. The other tokens, that are on open finance, unfortunately, have not experienced much liquidity at all. Nothing that I, I found was extremely notable. We're still getting, you know, test cases and, and transfers can happen and, and are being facilitated, but it just doesn't seem like there's a ton of investor demand right now. So fingers crossed that they continue to, to build on that. We know the team, we know they're working hard and, and uh, doing their best to launch. They do have five assets on their platform now. So if you're interested, go check out some of those funds, some of those tokenized assets there. And finally, the total STO market cap, we're looking at about 85 million US dollars at this time, somewhere in there. Again, with, with a lack of liquidity for a lot of these assets, it is difficult to determine, you know, how this changes over time as you know one trade can drastically affect the price and really swing this left and right but it is important to mention and certainly as we scale with all of these great news that we talk about each week we're expecting 2020 to have many exchanges live many live tokens all around the world in many different assets and at that point it will be very relevant and certainly much more stable yeah likely more so in the billions than the millions huh that's what i'm thinking
Next up, uh, we do have another event update for you all. Unfortunately, the CIS videos of the panel that we were on have yet to be released. But of course, the moment we see them on YouTube, we will let you know. And moving forward, we do have the Security Tokens Realized event in San Francisco on October 30th, which is tomorrow if you're listening to it on the day of the release. And also in New York on December 5th. So if you're in the area, definitely we recommend go check out the, those two different events hosted by the same people, obviously. And then we also have Malta Blockchain Summit, which is on November 7th and 8th. Lots of coverage there, but there is some security token focus there as well. So if you've got your eye on Malta, you want to go learn about the state of security tokens from, from Malta, that's definitely the conference to go and check out. With that, Kyle, I think we can jump right into our main topic, our stablecoin securities. Well, this, this topic is actually incited by some recent news, actually. Uh, specifically, last week, Representative Sylvia Garcia from Congress introduced legislation to the House Financial Services Committee to regulate stable coins under the Securities Act of 1933. This comes in response to, of course, the Libra cryptocurrency plan, which is introduced or at least credited to Facebook, which has created a lot of confusion within Congress, specifically around how this affects the U.S. economy and what Libra actually ultimately is. It seems to have changed the conversation from Bitcoin to blockchain or at least to stablecoin, which is now creating sort of a new cause of confusion, hence why there has been this focus uh, and, the, and the representative reaching out to the House Financial Services Committee about defining them uh, as securities. Now, stablecoins aren't by design meant to be securities. And it's very interesting because the CFTC in July testified that Libra looked very similar to an exchange-traded fund and therefore is a security. And thus, as a result, it seems like trickling down, it's defining all stablecoins as securities. In the past, we've had conversations about XRP being a security which can also be seen as a stable coin. There's lots of different questions around how and what is a stable coin ultimately and how it should be treated. So Kyle, let me start off by asking you, what, what do you think a stable, what is, how do you define a stable coin? So I think you can break a stable coin into three different types. You've got commodity backed, currency backed, or actively managed. And so the first example, commodity backed, is something that predates crypto, and when you look at fiat currencies, the, the formation of fiat currencies. And so when you look at the, the formation of the U.S. dollar, for example, and all the way up until 1971, you could exchange your paper dollars for gold, right? They pegged the dollar, the value of a dollar, to a specific weight in gold. And so in 1971, the last, right before the gold standard was removed from the dollar, I think it was about $20.80 per ounce of gold, you'd be able to go and, and, and make that purchase and exchange your dollars for that amount of gold, for one ounce of gold. And so when you have a commodity-backed stablecoin, essentially what you're doing is you're saying we're creating this digital asset that's bound to a collection of a specific commodity, whether that's gold. I've seen it for things like cobalt, actually. I've seen it for, for other rare and metals and materials and, and, and all different things there. And so we're talking about high value assets here. And the ability is to capitalize on the efficiencies of the security tokens that existing in existing commodities markets. So this is nothing really that new. It's the same thing that you can buy a gold, a share of a gold ETF on, on you know, a stock brokerage. And essentially what you're buying is the price of gold and, and holding that over time as it increases and decreases based off of demand. So that's commodity-backed. Hard for me to see that being a security, Herwig. It, you're not really making an investment in anything. I mean, even if you're calling it that colloquially, you're still just buying a commodity. Hard for me to see that being a security. Second type is currency-backed. And so this is most similar to some of the current currencies, like the dollar, euro, or yen, uh, and would function similarly to a pegged currency in traditional Forex. So. When you have in traditional markets, a country like Singapore that uses the US dollar, they peg their currency to the US dollar so that it just has the same price. And so it's essentially the same. They lose a lot of the freedom of being able to decide monetary policy, obviously, because they've given that responsibility to another country. 
But again, you're pretty much just following the price and the, the trading value, the exchange rate rather, of a, of a larger, more established currency and then leveraging that in your own economy. And so again, just like a, a commodity-backed token, this doesn't seem like a security to me because you're really just following a traditional currency. And again, currencies aren't considered securities. So therefore, if you're just following the price of a security with no change in value, that thing, you know, it's hard for me to see that being a security. Um, examples of this in, in stable coin form do exist. Tether is a huge example, certainly the, the largest, most well-known example where there's an issuer that, that holds a large pile of this currency in reserve and then issues their own Tether tokens at a one-to-one -one value for you know, a certain amount of dollars that they have in their reserve. And this actually allows them to function as, as almost a bank where they can issue and distribute currency for other users. And other examples of this include stable coins formed by the Winklevoss twins called the Gemini coin or DAI by MakerDAO. There's certainly many others as well. Circle, JP Circle, Morgan. JP Morgan certainly is, is one that's maybe more of an internal exchange rate coin as opposed to, I think, certainly at least with, with the ones, other ones we've referenced, they're more user, just kind of widespread adoption currencies. So it's an interesting example. I certainly think that this is, again, hard to find that it's a security. I can see regulators being a little bit worried of, of allowing for, again, like a company like Tether to be able to issue and distribute their own currency and to be able to print seniorage on that. Again, I think there have been some concerns over whether Tether actually has all of the money in their reserves that they say they do. Right, So if they've issued $40 million worth of Tether tokens that are supposed to be backed one-to-one -one and only have $13 million in the bank, who's holding them responsible for that? How did, That can get out of control quickly, right? So I can see there's certainly being some pushback there. Um, but again, it's hard for me to see that being a security. It seems like it would be more like they'd need to get a banking license before they could actually issue that. Um, but that's, again, outside the scope here. I don't believe that's a, a security. The final piece here, the final type is a actively managed stablecoin. And so this is similar to what Libra was announced as originally. It seems like they may be backpedaling a little bit as they realize that this is maybe questionable grounds. But Facebook announced this year that they would have a large portfolio of international CDs and short-term low-yield government bonds. And so with these bonds, the risk is essentially zero because, you know, the Bank of Germany or the U.S. Treasury or, you know, all of these large financial institutions would never let a short-term bond default, right? So the, the risk here is almost zero. It also pays a, a almost zero interest rate. It's, it's relatively small. It's, it's, it's less than a percent, usually maybe a percent and a half at maturity. And so Facebook originally wanted to issue their, you know, their Libra token that was backed by a pile of all of these different international CDs. And so they also had a, if you remember, a dual token model. So they wanted to have their stable coin that people could use and purchase and exchange within their system. But they also had a security token where those investors would actually reap the rewards of the interest rate gained on those government bonds. So again, as I said, if they had a 1.6% interest rate on their two-year fixed income treasury bond, the investors in the security token would be ref re referred those that 1.6%, and then the stable coin would be backed by that, that original value that was used to invest in the, in the CD. And so... This is still a stable coin, right? Because you're, you're putting it in almost zero risk. Again, government bonds are the most zero risk you can, you can really get in the market. So you're putting them in the most zero risk bonds. You're generating a small return, but at the end of the day, it's backed by those bonds. However, actively managed here. This is a piece that I think is hard to get over in the sense of there's a security token. It's being distributed. And this, this asset is collateralized by an actively managed portfolio, regardless of what that portfolio is, it does seem like it by definition is an actively managed portfolio. And this is one where I can see how regulators were not as excited to let this one come out. While again, it is low risk CDs, that line could be blurred, who knows what those restrictions are placed on it. And, and so because of that, it does seem like this could be a security. 
Yeah, that is that is also what the CFTC said, right? Um, and that key word seems to be here, the active managed component. It seems Libra that it's best to bifurcate the two by creating a security token, specifically taking the profits of the stable coin, if you will, and separating it out into a regulated investment vehicle. But at the end of the day, it still remains the, the question around, okay, but even though there's a stable coin linked to it, that stable coin is linked to an active managed basket of assets. And therefore, does that then translate into the other token as well? Certainly very confusing. And we're not going to pretend to say we have the answers on the show, but we can do our best to really dig into it. And funny enough, I think this is great that it's our topic this week because a couple of weeks ago at CIS, my compliance panel that I moderated, I was actually having a conversation ahead of time with, with my panelists, both an attorney and a accountant. And I asked this very question simply because we too are confused to say the least around what stable coins are classified as. And ultimately, it came down to that, that sort of famous little rule of how we test. And the, the attorney, though certainly not giving any type of legal advice, assumed that because the intent was to use a fixed vehicle without an appreciation of value, without necessarily a component of active management, which I think comes into really the key component, but if the purpose of it is to act as a representation of a commodity or a currency that's meant to be pegged, and it's meant to be used as a currency or for whatever use it's meant, then it doesn't technically trigger the Howey test to say that it's a security. Now, we do know that the active management for certainly makes it seem like there is now an interest for participation. There's also been discussions in the past about an ability to affect the supply and the value. In the case of Ripple, this was a major component because they have a centralized entity that owns a majority of the supply and therefore can affect the value overall of the token. So the ability for the organization originating the tokens effect on the, the token may have an effect on whether it's a security or not. Ultimately, it's very complicated because a lack of definition tells us that we have no idea who regulates this. Is it the CFTC? Is it FinCEN? Is it the SEC? This is why Kyle and I have been constantly and consistently vocal about the need for governments to define security tokens specifically. We've started to see it happen around the world. This, la this confusion around stable coins is, is exactly part of the problem and why we encourage the SEC in the, the United States to also define security tokens as well. And ultimately, I think the ramifications can be pretty serious. I mean, ultimately, it can thwart a lot of the adoption of these stable coins. Ultimately, their goal was to simply keep digital assets in a digital format as opposed to having to cash out into traditional fiat. You can now do a stable coin peg fiat and keep the entire portfolio digital, if you will. And of course, if it becomes a security, you're now required to register with the SEC. You now have a, a compliance wall that, that's probably going to prevent a lot of usage from the day-to-day. -day Shareholder consumer. limits. Shareholder limits, the whole shebang, right? So yeah, I, I think this is a rather serious subject. Ultimately, my opinion is we need this to find. Um, I hope that this cause by uh, Representative Sylvia here, Sylvia Garcia, is, is going to make an impact and force a response. But we'll see. We'll, of course, be watching. And you know you'll get the updates here. As always, check out our news. We, we post all of our articles in the description of the YouTube as well as through every podcast provider. And all of our news is sourced from stomarket.com news. So definitely go on there, check it out, vote, comment. And post your own links. If you have stuff that you want us to see, you can reach out to Herwig or myself through Twitter, LinkedIn, wherever you can find us. And uh, I'll talk to you next week. We're curious. Tell us what you think stablecoins are and, and your logic behind it. Maybe we'll cover it on the next episode. Uh, as always, catch you next week. Talk to you soon.